This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive into a question or category from one of those episodes. And then we wrap it up with a quiz. Before we uh, get into the regular recaps, obviously we have some things going on in our world right now. And Jeopardy has announced that they have uh, suspended tapings uh, for you know the foreseeable future. Which, of course, is a bummer, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, for pretty much everyone. I mean, we, we know it's the right call. And yep. uh, they, they should have enough, enough episodes recorded, you know, in the tank to get us to May, at least. Yeah, that's what, that's what Andy Saunders over at the Jeopardy fan thought. Some, some point in May. Yeah. So we'll see where we are at that point. Yeah. If we run out of Jeopardy, uh, and, you know, if they're not able to finish out the season or they have to take a break we'll still be here for you we're not quite sure what we'll do but there is lots of knowledge in the world to talk about and there's lots of jeopardy in the world to talk about yeah and uh you know much like pretty much anyone who's listening we'll figure it out when we get there (laughs) that's how we roll now that is the mantra of our age (laughs) anyway (laughs) So uh, we're talking about Monday, March 16th through Friday, March 20 of 2020. And going into Monday, we have the contestants Sid Katz, a retired school psychologist from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Sarah Schmidt, a podcaster and stay-at-home mom from Columbus, Ohio. And Jessica Babbitt, a personal stylist from Austin, Texas whose three-day cash winnings total $71,598. And in the Jeopardy round, we get the categories Clues Across America. That's what I'm talking about. X marks the middle spot with X exactly in the middle of each correct response. Recent events, The Woman of the Century, and Radioactive with a space. The recent events category was pretty fun. It hits on, hit on some like you know pop culture kind of mm-hmm. recent events, particularly the four hundred and six hundred dollar clues. Uh, the four hundred dollar clue was in twenty nineteen, a new buttermilk batter helped this chain sell out of its chicken sandwiches in just two weeks, mm-hmm. uh, and that was of course Popeyes with the famous chicken sandwich feud. Mm-hmm. Between them and Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Have you tried both of those sandwiches? I think I have tried neither of those sandwiches. <gasps> I I haven't had the Popeye's one. Actually, it was all sold out when I went to get one. And then I was like, you know what? It's not worth it. <laughs> it's yeah. just a sandwich. Uh, but I've heard it's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, I have heard good things also. And similarly about Chick-fil-A, but... I think given the the Chick-fil-A controversy, they got on my radar at initially during the controversy regarding um, 
donations to like anti-LGBTQ, like traditional mm-hmm. marriage organizations. And um, yeah, yeah, just never, never sought out that sandwich. There have been, sure. there have been fluctuations in how, you know, how committed they are to that stance publicly, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah just hasn't happened at this point. Sure. I'm not going to say never. We'll see. Yeah. Um, the $600 clue was love it or hate it. This NHL mascot scene here was introduced in 2018 and probably you don't even need to see the picture uh, mm-hmm. if you're kind of aware of things, uh, but that would be gritty. Yep. Uh, there's a Twitter account called gritty plays jeopardy. Uh, so gritty <laughs> is fully involved. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, gritty is, is deep in the jeopardy jeopardy fandom. I think somebody lost their status as the only person to ever say who is gritty mm. uh, on Jeopardy. I, th- I believe that was uh, Eric Backus. Yeah, I thought it was Eric Backus. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty bummed about it. I'm still the only person to ever say who is Chumbawamba. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. I, I imagine that'll stick around for a while. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the $1,000 clue in that same category, uh, Carlos Gosen, disgraced head of this car company, made a dramatic house arrest break in Japan and fled to Lebanon. That was a part of a Learned League question recently. Mm-hmm. He's the head of Nissan. And uh, apparently he like stowed away on an airplane flight in like a guitar case or something like that. I think he had a band come play in his house and then was mm-hmm. snuck out of his house arrest inside an instrument case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and and I, I think also I think you're right. Also on the flight, but I don't know. Just something about like I, when that happened, my husband said this thing happened, and you need to know it for trivia. And, <laughs> and he described it to me, but then none of the pieces of information I committed to my memory have been the specific thing that was being asked for. So, yeah. whoops, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a anyway. great story. It is, and it yeah. Anyway, we get the Daily Double at pick number eight. It's in the Woman of the Century category. It's the $600 level. Jessica finds it, and she wagers 1000 of her 1600 She's in the lead at that point. So this category, they give the woman, and you have to name the century that she lived in. Uh, so the clue here is Anne Boleyn. And Jessica correctly identifies the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And I, I have previously said I, I think Jessica is coming across to me as an Anglophile. Um, mm-hmm. And like, again, I thought I saw that like relief of like, oh, I'm like firmly like I have a firm grasp on this history. I like seeing what like when a contestant sees the clue and like is visibly relieved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt mm-hmm. like we saw that in this case. Definitely. Yeah. And this round, they cleared the board, and it they did go top to bottom mm-hmm. through the whole round. They did not go left to right, but they finished each category before moving on to the next one. That's right. Um, and they, nice. they left the video category for last, which led to um, Double Jeopardy not having as much time available. So they, uh, they had a few clues unrevealed at the end of Double Jeopardy. Uh, the video category being Clues Across America, where each clue was presented by someone from an affiliate. 
station. Mm-hmm. Is that is that how you? I don't I don't understand TV business stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah it's local affiliates that they syndicate yeah. to. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, we have Jessica in the lead with four thousand. Sarah is close behind with three thousand eight hundred. And Sid is close behind her with 3,600, so a really close game going into Double Jeopardy. We get the Double Jeopardy categories of North Korean geography, a novel passage, rods and cones, cones spelled C-O-H-N-S, Shakespeare means something else, architecture history, and radioactive. This time is one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again, I think they played each category. Oh, no, there was one exception, right? Yes, um, there is one blemish on this otherwise perfect, perfect <laughs> plan. Right. So almost everything was played top to bottom, with the exception that late in the round, Sid brought us over to the top clue of rods and cones. Sarah got it, moved us over to a novel passage. They played that one top to bottom and then returned to rods and cones. But they started off with architecture history, where we got the daily double pretty soon in the round. Uh, it was the fourth pick at the $1,600 level. Sid found it and wagered 2000 of his 5600 um he was in the lead at that point uh jessica had 4400 and sarah 3800 and he got the clue bernini meant for his design of the colonnades in front of this basilica to represent the encircling arms of the church and he correctly answered what is saint peter's mm-hmm. i kind of feel like any time basilica is mentioned you just should go with St. Peter's. Yeah, that's a good guess. Not that there aren't other basilicas, of course, but mm-hmm. that's usually the one that's referred to as a basilica. That's right. Uh, Sagrada Familia in Barcelona is technically a basilica. Mm. We've talked about that. We did, yes. That's the that's the reason that one came to mind. And there are others. Yeah, I think it's uh, basilica just means like a like a religious building of great significance as designated by the Pope. Mm-hmm. If I if I remember correctly, the novel passage category was pretty fun. It gives a uh, gives a passage from a novel, and you have to identify the novel. Mm-hmm. And they did they got the first three, but triple stumpers on both the sixteen hundred and two thousand dollar clue. The sixteen hundred was now Mister Earnshaw did not understand jokes from his children. He had always been strict and grave with them, and that is from Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. And the 2000 was, Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. And that is from The Stranger, mm-hmm. which I still need to read. Yeah, I haven't read either of those. No, no, of course I have. Why Why am I saying that? I read Wuthering Heights. I just didn't <laughs> like it that much. <laughs> really? I, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Although by the end, I was very tired of the like melodramatic angst. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. It felt like kind of a slog to me. Mm. Jane Eyre, on the other hand, speaking, but for I guess the connection being Bronte novels, I enjoyed quite yeah. a lot. Haven't read it. I yeah. I I told myself I was gonna go through the Victorians and the you know the the Brontes and the and Jane Austen. 
mm-hmm. and then I read Withering Heights and got done with it, and I was like, mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come back to this later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someday I'm going to yeah. read Russian novels. That's my... That's my Oof. I got yeah. a lot of them on my... On my, well, right now they're in boxes because we're uh, we're moving next week. So mm-hmm. when we unpack them, maybe I'll look at them and say like, "Yeah, I'll read these." Yeah. Put them back on my shelf for another couple years. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Oh, oh, we only got one of the we daily doubles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Sid is in the lead with eighteen thousand four hundred. Jessica is trailing with twelve thousand. Sarah is in third place with 5,400, so not necessarily out of contention, depending on how everybody chooses to wager, um, for the category movie musicals. And the clue is water pressure issues in Culver City, home to MGM, impacted the filming of an iconic scene in this 1952 movie musical. Sarah has wagered zero, and guesses what is the Wizard of Oz. Uh, that's incorrect. Jessica has wagered everything she has, 12,000, and responds, what is singing in the rain? Uh, Sid has a $7,474 wager and also is correct with what is singing in the rain. So he is the champion. little self-referential clue there. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, Jeopardy is filmed at Sony Picture Studios in Culver City, which used to be MGM Studios. So mm-hmm. it was in that same that same lot. Per the Jeopardy fan, every day at four o'clock, uh, the residents of the area would start to water their lawns, and that would mean that there wasn't enough. Uh, like they they couldn't like generate the amount of uh, water and water pressure that they needed for their for the rain scenes. <laughs> During that time of day. That's so. <laughs> that's so just like quirky. Yeah. Just, that's, really, that's really funny. Yeah. All right. So going into Tuesday, we have Chris Sunderick, an adjunct professor from New York, New York. Nicole Economou, an OBGYN from San Diego, California. And Sid Katz, a retired school psychologist from Cherry Hill, New Jersey whose one-day catch winnings total $25,874. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. U.S. Geography, Classic Rock and Roll Quotes, On Time, uh, talking about the cover of Time magazine, Abbreviated ABC, Sippin' on Gin and or Juice, and That's Old School. <laughs> I... Uh... <laughs> I, I can only imagine the percentage of Jeopardy viewers that <laughs> that just went over their head. <laughs> Sipping on gin and or juice. Yeah. That that and or, it just gets me. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, yes. Yeah. I need to remember that one from for when I uh when I'm finally back with my students, you know, half of whom are sure they're gonna be the next big rapper. Uh, I need to drop that line on them, see how they do with it. And then the first clue in the category is prune juice. Yes. Which, just... Which again, uh, I think a stark reversal in the percentage of people who watch Jeopardy who got it. Yep. I actually did okay in that category uh, because gin is my liquor of choice. Hmm. 
I so, did not know that uh, about you. Yeah. Did not know Singapore Sling. I was watching it with my mom, and she was she she knew it, and she's like, I don't know how anybody younger than me would know that one. <laughs> I I felt bad for missing Singapore Sling. I feel like I've seen seen that drink around some. Hmm. I feel like there was a Top Chef episode way back where somebody did like a like a reinterpretation of a Singapore Sling or like a dessert that was inspired by a Singapore Sling. I don't remember, but we get the Daily Double as the twentieth pick in the abbreviated ABC category at the $800 level. Chris finds it and has a zero at that point, um, but wagers 1,000. Um, Sid has 3,000 at that point, and Nicole has 3,600. Uh, we get the clue in the Anglican Church, ABC refers to this high personage. And Chris correctly responds, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yep, too bad, uh, too bad Jessica lost the day before. She'd have been all over that. Oh, yeah. At the end of the single Jeopardy round, Sid is in the lead with 4,600. Nicole is trailing with 3,000. Chris has 2,600. As we go into the double Jeopardy round and get the categories medicine men, characters in Moby Dick, and then what happened, animal phrases, alliterative actresses, and languages and dialects. We bounced around a lot more in this game Mm -hmm. than in the previous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seemed to be daily double hunting. Yeah. For the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And speaking of, we find the second daily double at pick number three in the round. It's at the $2,000 level of medicine men. Chris also finds it. And he has moved up to 4,200, so he makes it a true daily double. And the clue is, a 2019 surgery on a 60-year-old woman revealed a nearly 50-year-old mitral valve that this South African man had implanted. And he's having a hard time remembering, and he guesses who is Jarvik, uh, but the correct response is Dr. Christian Barnard. Uh, who is famous for the first heart transplant, hmm. and that was done in South Africa. That's one of the one of the big like uh, scientific kind of claims to fame of South Africa. They're very proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remembered his first name, so I said Doctor Christian. Mm. Don't know that they would have taken that. Yeah. But <laughs> I I, uh, I was not familiar with this piece of information at all, so I learned mm-hmm. daily double number three. Comes up very soon after that as well. Uh, They finish out the medicine men category and then find daily double number three in the and then what happened category at the $1,600 level as the ninth pick. Sid finds it. He has $7,000 and wagers $2,000. Nicole has $5,000 and Chris has $400 at that point. Uh, So if he gets it wrong, he'll drop down to tied with Chris. He gets the clue. In 1846, he sued in Missouri State Court to be freed from slavery, and in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against him. And Sid correctly responds, who is Dred Scott? I think the Dred Scott v. Sanford is like the little phrase that's kind of pinging. I took a constitutional law class way back when, Mm. um, and very little remains in my brain other than the names of the significant cases probably some <laughs> sure 
Uh, but for trivia purposes, <laughs> that's what I've got. Yeah, not to not to brag or anything, but this particular round and really this game in general, I felt I did really well. Nice. I only missed two in double jeopardy. Whoa! It felt really good. <laughs> um, and they were also ones that the contestants missed. So yeah, like I like I mentioned, I didn't get to Christian Barnard. I got half his name. Felt really good. And on that high, rolling into the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Sid is in the lead at sixteen thousand six hundred. Nicole has ninety eight hundred, and Chris has ninety six hundred. Uh, could be anybody's game still. They get the category UN members, and the clue: it incorporated the one country, two systems principle in its constitution in nineteen eighty two, and put it into practice after a nineteen ninety seven reunification. Chris wagered 7,001, and he responds, what is China, and who is going to hire this PhD? Just a little aside, we learned at the beginning of the episode that he is an adjunct professor, and boy, is that a tough life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, hopefully he does get some some recognition. Uh, But China is correct. Mm -hmm. Nicole guessed what is the Czech Republic with a 6,801 wager. So she drops down, and Sid responds, what is Germany, which is also incorrect. So that means that Chris is our champion. And he was completely shocked. Yes. He's also rather performative. Or mm. maybe not performative, but just, just very emotive. Emotive, yeah. I mean, I think if you're if you're familiar with China and Hong Kong and the one country, two systems principle, then this feels totally obvious and if you're not then how would you know then yeah you know that then you're not I, um, I i definitely did not get there okay yeah my husband used to go to hong kong sometimes for work and so i was sort of familiar with that that hong kong is part of china but in many ways feels like it is not part of china you know, different, different visas, clearly, you know, obviously different economic systems, um, Mm -hmm. currencies. And so I was familiar with that. Um, and with the, the protests and the, and the, um, unrest that had been taking place in Hong Kong pretty recently, some months ago, I think it was back, back before this whole new situation started, I'm not sure what's happening in Hong Kong now. Yeah. So that one came to me pretty easily. Nice. Yeah. So Chris is our winner going into Wednesday. We have the contestants Andrea Dragon, a research compliance manager from Silver Spring, Maryland. Emmy Crawford, a program officer from Arlington, Virginia. And Chris Sunderick, an adjunct professor from New York, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $16,601. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, biographies and memoirs, 40-something, translated cities, TV stars, stagey dialogue, and the Mandela effect. Um, And Alex notes, uh, these will have to do with strong memories turning out to not quite match the facts. My favorite Mandela effect is um, the uh, Berenstain versus Berenstain bears. Which, if you want to go down an internet rabbit hole, the people who think that 
the fact that it is spelled Berenstain with an A um, yeah. is evidence that we are in an alternate timeline and there are multiple <laughs> universes. Those people are fun. <laughs> yes, fun from a distance, I would say. Yeah. My, mine is a, a Shazam or, or whatever it was, like the the movie with, isn't there, like, it, it's like a movie with Shaq playing a genie or something like that, like, yes, that never existed. I it's It blows my mind because I absolutely remember it. Right. <laughs> but um, it doesn't, it's not real. Yep. I can never quite remember, like, which thing actually is real. Because there's, like, something, mm-hmm. like, there's something close enough that people have this false memory. Yeah, I think, I think, like, there was Kazam with uh, Sinbad, right? No, Hold on. Kazam was with Shaq. Am I thinking? I think, I, see, I think I'm it is. getting it wrong. I Kazam think it is. Kazam with Shaq is with exists. Shaq. And, and I, we're thinking of one with Sinbad. And, and Shazam with Sinbad is a fabrication. Is, is not real. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. <laughs> see, I'm, I'm even getting the wrong thing wrong. Right. Or you have swapped place with your alternate universe doppelganger, which is more likely. (laughs) I'll edit that out. Don't let anybody know. (laughs) Anyway, that that has only to do with the category and not with any of the actual clues that we saw in that in that category. But anyway, I I thought the translated cities category was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fun to like to see what it what it would be in in English. I didn't actually know that Las Vegas meant the meadows. The meadows. Yeah. yeah. But Red Stick, Louisiana, that's Baton Rouge. I got that one. And River of January, Brazil is Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. And I also got Eat, Germany. That's Essen. Yep. Essen. Yep. Couldn't think of Des Moines fast enough. That's uh, Of the Monks, Iowa. Yeah. We get the Daily Double. In the biographies and memoirs category at the $1,000 level, it's pick number 14. Emmy finds it, and she wagers everything, uh, all of her 2800 She is in a close second behind Chris at that point. The clue is biographies by Walter Isaacson include Steve Jobs and one about this man, subtitled His Life and Universe. And Emmy guesses who is hawking but the correct response is albert einstein i also guessed hawking Mm. i think i've seen this book so like the the combination of words like you know einstein his life and universe Mm, yeah clumped together in my head so she loses it all but it's you know halfway through the jeopardy round plenty of time left Mm mm-hmm I had never heard, there was a triple stumper at the $400 level of 40 something, and I had not heard of it, um, even though it's in my field. I mean, I, I heard of the correct response, and I guessed it correctly, but I looked it up. This three-volume work completed around 1455 is sometimes called the 42-line Bible. Um, I guessed the Gutenberg Bible just based on the year, mm-hmm. um, and it turns out that it's called the 42-line Bible because they printed it with 42 lines per page in two columns. Makes so sense. that's that's where that comes from. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is in the lead at 6,600. 
Andrea is in second place at 2200 and Emmy is in third at 1400. So she will pick from the categories Places in Fantasy, Ends with a Three-Letter Body Part, Battleships, Classic Songs, Life, and Insured by Lloyds, meaning Lloyds of London. Mm-hmm. I liked every single one of these categories, except for the Lloyds of London one. At least at least from the start. I ended up liking it because I like the clues were good, but the categories just off the bat, I was like really excited about these. Yeah. I am chronically terrible at military history, so I was uh, apprehensive about battleships, but I thought they were a good set of categories. Mm-hmm. We got the Daily Double right off the bat, third pick in the fa- Places in Fantasy category at the $1,600 level. Chris found it and uh, wagered 3000 of his 8200 he was in a solid lead at that point. Emmy had 1,400 and Andrea 2,200. And he got the clue. The name of this two-word ancestral dwelling in Tolkien is a play on the translation of the French cul-de-sac. And he guessed what is Middle Earth. The correct response there is Bag End. Mm-hmm. T- took me a little while to like work my way around to it, but I was, was able to get there. Just given what, you know, cul-de-sac means, like, bottom of the bag or whatever. Yeah. Quick uh, book recommendations by Kyle, which I don't think I've ever actually done. The next clue down, the $2,000 clue in that category, is uh, much of the action in the files of this guy, the city's resident practicing professional wizard, takes place in Chicago. And that is Harry Dresden. Those are the Dresden files. I really enjoy the Dresden Files. They are uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek and easy to read. They're they're like a kind of like you know thriller adventure books that the whole the whole story takes place in the span of like you know a day or two because it's a lot of action back to back to back and then it's resolved. The humor in it and the and the way that Jim Butcher, the author incorporates a lot of different like mythologies and and like folklore into Mm. it it's really interesting neat yeah so if you're looking for a fairly easy read and and something that's just kind of enjoyable check them out i'm adding it to my list right now the third daily double shows up in the ends with a three letter body part category also at the 1600 dollars level emmy finds it and she wagers 3000 of her 4600 uh, she is in second place behind Andrea, who's at 8,200. Uh, so this won't actually get her into first place, but it'll get her a lot closer. The clue is, this other name for tetanus refers to one of its most common symptoms. And she correctly identifies what is lockjaw. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Andrea is in the lead with 12,600. Chris is trailing with 9,600, and Emmy is in third place with 6,400. And we get the final Jeopardy category, fairs and expositions. And the clue is, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of a major event, Seville, Spain, and Genoa, Italy, both had expositions in this year. Emmy has wagered almost everything, 6,200, to get equal to Andrea's current score. 
and she has the correct response. What is 1992? Chris has wagered 3,600, but has put what is 1492. He was thinking of the original year, not the 500th anniversary year. Mm -hmm. Andrea has wagered $6,601, so a cover bet. And has the correct response. What is 1992? So she will be our champion going into Thursday. So going into Thursday, we have Aaron Shepard, a Navy JAG officer from Alexandria, Virginia. Michonne Omo, a staff attorney from Walnut Creek, California. And Andrea Dragon, a research compliance manager from Silver Spring, Maryland, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $19,201. And we get the Jeopardy categories Here Here New York, The Pony Express, Mock Meets, Terms of Art, Knowledge, and Power in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. The $1,000 clue in power is uh, very familiar to me because uh, the, the clue is expect the best and get it is a chapter in this bestseller by Norman Vincent Peale. That's the power of positive thinking. Um, it was a triple stumper after Andrea guessed what is absolute power. Norman Vincent Peale was a was a minister in New York City in a in a reformed church, which is a closely related denomination to my own. And in fact, I pastor mm. a reformed church now. Um, it is sort of positive thinking movement is um, controversial um, <laughs> <laughs> among clergy. Well, I'll leave it at that. It's controversial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a different podcast. Yeah. When we got mock meats, I was expecting more like tofurkey and like beyond burger and like those kinds of things. And we did end up going with that with two clues unrevealed, but the three that they did reveal were not so much mock meats, I would say, as just, you know, I, I don't know. I, they don't seem to be pretending to be meat in any way. No. It's, yeah. It's, I guess things you could substitute for if you weren't really intending it to taste like meat anyway. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a question about mushrooms um, that have this Japanese fifth taste that's umami. There was a question about a tropical fruit that has a meat-like texture. I guess that's close to a mock meat. That's jackfruit. Kind of. Yeah. I've heard like pulled jackfruit sandwiches are like similar to barbecue sandwiches in texture. Really? Yeah, that's what I've but heard. What would that taste like? Yeah, I don't know. I've seen jackfruit at the Trader Joe's. I just never mm -hmm. have tried it. And then the $1,000 clue was about a six-letter Indian soft cheese that substitutes for meat. Uh, that's mm -hmm. paneer. Which, um, but it doesn't really substitute. It's just its own separate thing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like you're. It, yeah, it's not like you're. You're making a dish, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to substitute the meat that I would have had for paneer. Yeah, it's just gonna be like I'm making paneer. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. The Daily Double comes in as the 27th pick in the $600 level of the Pony Express category. Andrea finds it, wagers 1,000 of her 3,400. Uh, at that point, Michonne has 
4,200. Aaron is in the negative with negative 200. And Andrea gets the clue. The Express only ran for 18 months, ending when this other service was completed nationwide in 1861. She guessed what is the transcontinental railroad, um, but the correct response there is the transcontinental telegraph. Yeah, it's a tough beat there. Yeah. When was the transcontinental railroad completed? Uh, oh, 1869. Okay. Yes. And speaking of, for trivia, transcontinental railroad completed in 1869, the golden spike was mm. the ceremonial last spike that was driven in at Promontory, Utah. Or Promontory, Promontory Point, Point, Utah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Michonne in the lead with 4,200. Andrea has 2,400. Aaron has negative 200. So we'll pick first from the double Jeopardy categories, lakes and rivers. The first modern Olympics. Adjectives for animals. I feel like we've had a lot of animal, like, wordplay language categories recently. Mm-hmm. Historic elements and minerals, authors, other jobs, and cast it. Yep. So cast it was uh, giving a, a role on a TV TV series, and you need to give the, uh, in this case, just actor who played them, because they're all male roles. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed the first Modern Olympics category. I think it I think it's a really interest. I just love the Olympics in general, and I'm really, really sad that, mm. well, for a couple of reasons. One, one that it is highly unlikely that the Olympics will happen this year, and two, also that the IOC doesn't seem to want to accept that truth. Mm. There are plenty of people, and and like the Japanese authorities also are kind of. They they don't want to cancel it because obviously it's a it's a major investment and a huge you know huge deal for the country. But mm-hmm. I mean, in all reality, it's not going to happen, and they kind of need to come to terms with that. Anyway, yeah. yeah, just just more information about like the first modern Olympics is just really I just love learning about it and you know finding out more about it. Yeah, it was a fun category. I thought. So Daily Double number two shows up at pick number 15. It's the $800 clue in author's other jobs. Aaron finds it. He has managed to dig himself out of the hole at this point. He's up to 2,600, which is right behind Andrea at 2,800 and way far behind Michonne, who is up at 10,600. Uh, so he makes it a true Daily Double because that's really the only option he got mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, good play. And he gets the clue. Like Doc Holliday, Zane Gray was trained as one of these professionals. And this is pretty much a know-it-or-you-don't kind of question. He guesses what is a veterinarian, but the correct response is a dentist. Mm-hmm. Doc Holliday was a dentist. Yeah. We get Daily Double number three as the 24th pick at the $2,000 level of the first modern Olympics. Michonne finds it. And wagers 2,000 of her 15,800. If she gets it wrong, it'll still be a lock game for her because Andrea has 6,400 and Aaron is at negative 2,000. And she gets the clue. Though joined together at the time, these two Central European countries competed separately. 
She guesses what are the Czech Republic and Slovakia. The correct response there actually is Austria and Hungary. So she drops down a bit. But not, 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 not too much. She's had a very successful game. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, Andrea has 6,400. Michonne has a lock game at 15,800. And Aaron tried to get himself back into contention by taking some risks, but uh, ended up negative 3,600. So he does not get to compete in Final Jeopardy. And the category that they get is 20th Century History. And the clue is 1946 was the last year this place, now a country, was represented in the U.S. House of Representatives. Andrea wagered 3,600 because... I think she wanted to get up to 10,000, yeah, right? Yeah, like, hit, hit, hit that 10,000 mark. It's good to... If, yeah. there's nobody, if there's nobody playing from the third place position and the first place has a lot game, you know, like go for a number that you want. Bet, you know, yeah, something that feels feel like. nice and round. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. It makes sense to me. Uh, and she correctly identified, what is the Philippines? Michonne wagered zero and did not offer a response, but she won because she yeah. had it locked. That's right. So she will be our champion. So going into Friday, we have the contestants Abhijit Khanna, a software developer from Washington, D.C., Katie Cummings, an attorney from Pasadena, California, and Michonne Omo a staff attorney from Walnut Creek, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $15,800. And we get the categories in the Jeopardy round, American Poetry, This Planet, Words with Five Vowels, uh, not necessarily the same vowels, Alex, Alex notes. Which... I, I felt like that was an unnecessary caveat because how many words have the same vowel five times? Right. Beekeeper, right? I don't know yeah. what else. Yeah, I'd be I'd be hard-pressed to think of any others. I'm impressed with myself for coming up with one. I am also um, impressed because I thought the answer was a, was a strong zero, but apparently there's at least <laughs> one. I think he's also indicating, meaning to indicate that they are not necessarily, I think it's called super vocalic. Is that right? Where sure. where a word has uh, one of each of the five vowels. Mm-hmm. Anyway, words with five vowels. Running gags. Pay up. And we need the bread. Which I assume that's a reference to some running gag from something that I don't have good familiarity with. Oh, well. I also am not aware of it. So if it's a joke, haha. We enjoy jokes. Yes. Jokes indeed. <laughs> we need to have Lauren come back and explain the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> right. It helps. It helps to have a funny person here. Um, if you're a Jeopardy nerd, you know that Alex Trebek likes a good looking car. Mm-hmm. Which I was reminded of uh, early in the round at the $800 level of pay up. You'll need a million dollars plus to own a 918 Spider from this manufacturer. Uh, it's a Porsche, and uh, Alex appreciates it. Yes. Yes, yeah. he does. <laughs> it is a good-looking car. I had a great round. I had a great single Jeopardy round. Nice. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I did pretty well, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Yeah. If we recall, I talked about Edgar Allan Poe a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And the $200 clue in American poetry is a poem by Edgar Allan Poe mentioned silver and golden bees jingling, tinkling, chiming. And that got us talking into, actually a separate clue got us talking about the word tintinabulation. Right. Which we talked about, and that word simply means, like, bell sounds. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that poem was Tintinabulation of the Bells, which is Mm -hmm. one of Poe's, I guess, kind of medium-known works. I wouldn't say it's one of the better-known works. Yeah. He was prolific. Yes. I really enjoyed the This Planet category. I thought all of the clues were were good. Uh, We Mm -hmm. get the Daily Double at the $800 level in that category. Katie finds it, and she wagered uh, $1,600, which was everything she had. She was in a tie with Michonne for the lead there. And the clue is, it is noted for a dark gap called the Cassini Division. Katie isn't sure, and she guesses what is Neptune, but the correct response is Saturn. Uh, And that's talking about a gap within the rings, or at least what appears to be a gap within the rings. And another way you could access that is the Cassini probe is the one that went and explored the the rings of Saturn. Hmm. So Cassini, the name Cassini, should always be associated with Saturn. Yeah. I learned that one. My children are really into planets and drilled me on planets um, be- before I flew out to Los Angeles, before we taped. Uh, my older one, more than my younger one, who was two at the time. Um, but now she's into planets, <laughs> too. Um, <laughs> uh, she had a meltdown earlier today because we will not let her go to Venus. She understands that it is not technologically possible. She's still really bummed about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Because that's what toddlers do. <laughs> <laughs> uh yep so i i uh i remember learning the the cassini app um at that time nice. it was a fun category yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round michelle is in the lead at 4400 katie is at 3400 and abhijit is at 1400 and we get the double jeopardy categories classical music quoting the comedy film Game over, over in quotation marks, political parlance, historic names, and foreign flags. And the second Daily Double comes up almost right away uh, as the third pick at the $1,200 level of historic names. Abhijit finds it and wagers $1,200 of his $2,600. At that point, Michonne has $4,400 and Katie has $3,400. So a correct response will put him back up into second place. He gets the clue, Lord Darnley, husband of this monarch, was murdered at Edinburgh in 1567, and he correctly responds, who is Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm-hmm. The year in Edinburgh, I think, would be are the way to get that one. Yeah, I, I definitely did not know that Lord Darnley was her husband. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I did not either, but, but I got it based on those. Uh, we got a good example of the judges accepting responses that are mispronounced but you clearly know what they are and mm. get it cl- like close enough to what the spelling would be it's in the foreign flags category at the $2000 level 
uh, it showed a picture essentially of Mexico's flag. And the clue is the emblem on Mexico's flag is based on a legend that an eagle perched on a cactus was the sign to where the wandering Aztec people should build their capital named this, now the site of Mexico City. And Abhijit has a really hard time saying Tenochtitlan, but he he pronounces it like Tenochtitlan or something, but they were able to hear all of the syllables and like acceptable pronunciations of those syllables. So he was credited with, with mm-hmm. a correct response. Yeah. Not before Alex asked him to say it again. And yeah, uh, so- got a, like, I, I was like sort of a, you've got to be kidding me kind of, look, yeah. you know, I thought, um, you know, like yeah. it was, it was hard <laughs> enough saying it the first time. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. I got the $400 triple stumper in game over. Galoshes are a type mm. of these that's over shoes. Um, but with the asterisk that like nobody says that anymore. And I think I only know it from like reading really old children's books when I was a kid, you know? That, um, yeah, that might be it. I don't, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that over shoes is, is a, it's a word that is used these days. I feel like that would have been a, Maybe I, I would have put that at a, at a higher dollar figure. Yeah, I definitely did not know it. Um, but I am significantly younger than you, so that makes sense. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My childhood in the 1930s really helped right. me out with that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Enough um, of that from you, Whippersnapper. snapper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, obviously, I loved the classical music category. Mm-hmm. I thought they were appropriately leveled. I thought that I, I, the way that they were, the way that they were placed in the category, I thought they were uh, like at the right difficulty for each one. And we get the third daily double at the $800 level in that category. Michonne finds it. She wagers 2,000 of her 8,400. She's trailing Katie, who is at 11,000. Uh, so that'll put her almost up to that, almost into a tie, but not quite. And she gets the clue, this march by Sir Edward Elgar is commonly played at high school and college graduations. And even if you know nothing about anything, if you just see the word graduations, you can probably guess that it's Pomp and Circumstance. Mm-hmm. Which actually, the entirety of Pomp and Circumstance is actually a really good piece of music. Huh. I have no idea what the rest of it sounds like. None whatsoever. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than just the bum, 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 which is what you always mm-hmm. hear repeated over and over at graduations. Mm-hmm. And so because it has become, you know, so entrenched in that tradition and hearing it repeated, it has lost its, I think, some of its value as an actual piece of music. I, I think it's actually a very good piece of music. It's just unfortunate that it has become sort of trite. Mm, yeah. Also, want to quickly talk about her wager there. It seems like Michon knows classical music at least a little bit, and it's an $800 level clue, and this was at pick number 23, so there's not a lot left on the board. I'd have gone for it there. Yeah. Like, a big bet at that point. Because it's mm-hmm. the easy, you know, quote-unquote easiest level you're going to find the Daily Double. Yeah. 
except for the very rare $400, you know, top row one. But, but whatever. She gets it right. Yeah. Um, and with a few other uh, good gets and the last few clues of the round does actually go in to final in the lead. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that would have been a good moment to really make a big move. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Michonne is in the lead with 14,000. Katie is trailing just slightly with 13,400. Abhijit is in third place, but certainly not out of contention with 11,000. And they get the category women authors and the clue Two events figure prominently in her 2003 memoir, a coup in Chile on September 11, 1973, and the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Abhijit has wagered 4,300 and guesses who is Hillary Clinton. Not a terrible guess, although it looks like, I mean, both, both he and Katie went for sort of political figures who also write books. Um, mm. So he drops down to 6,700. Katie has made a huge wager from second place. <sighs> if Abhijit was all in, he could get up to 22,000. So you would want, you could make a case for her going to, to cover 8601. Yeah. And once you're there, probably just 8601 is the highest I would go. Um, just, just in case. Yeah. Having like 4,600. Like that, that's not, that's not an impossible winning score. Um, right. I think that's probably the highest I would go. But yeah, big, big bet from second place, 12,000. And she has guessed who is Albright. Uh, Michonne has wagered 7,000 and does not have anything written down. It's who is question mark. Yeah. So she drops down to just above Abhijit 7,000 to his 6,700. Katie's landed down at 1,400. And Michonne's is not quite a cover no, bet. These are either. strange wagers. Yeah. Just kind of I mean, so much of So much of a good deal of wagering theory is predicated on the idea that everyone also has studied it and mm-hmm. knows what the most rational thing to do is, which is not always right. an assumption you can make. But yeah, these are, th- these wagers are, I think maybe based more on comfort level with the category would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got this one, right? Kyle, did you get this one, right? I did. Nice. Good job. Yes. Thank you. In fact, I, when this came up and I read it, I said to my wife, who do you think this is? And she looked at the screen and gave some joke answer that I don't remember. And then I looked at her and she was like, oh, it's um, it's Isabel Allende because mm-hmm. she helped me study my flashcards for the, the tournament. And this she was one of the women authors that I made sure to know about. Yeah, I read The House of the Spirits um, sometime last year. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I would recommend it. This has been Book Recommendations with Emily. Nice. Yeah, I think women women authors, I was not 100% confident that it was referring to Isabel Allende hmm. because I wasn't quite sure. I, I mean, I'd read her. I'd read The House of the Spirits. I knew that I knew she was from Chile. I didn't quite know where September 11th, 2001 would come in for her later in her life. Sure. But also, I mean, you know, now that I'm thinking about it. Really, how many authors from Chile are Jeopardy contestants expected to know? Right. And also, 
particularly with the coup um because she was the like niece sort of of mm-hmm. the of Salvador Allende who was right. uh deposed by Pinochet. Yes. So so uh Michonne is our winner champion. She'll be back on Monday uh as a two-day champion with $22,800 mm-hmm. and we'll get to see her try again. Yeah, and I am absolutely not throwing shade, but we'll see if she offers a, uh, an answer in Final Jeopardy on Monday, because <laughs> uh, yeah, neither day has gone, she offered yeah. a, an actual response. That's true. And she still won, so, you know, good on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. can't argue with winning. That's right. <laughs> All right, so this is a great opportunity for us to plug our Patreon mm-hmm. while we still probably hopefully have listeners who don't uh turn it off before the end of the episode um <laughs> yeah check out our patreon patreon.com slash potent potables we've got different subscription levels uh at any level you get access to our exclusive patron content like our goat analysis episode and uh information that we add from our deep dives that don't necessarily make it and also i will be getting out a uh an outtakes track up this week some of the stuff that we uh, we enjoyed, but didn't didn't quite make the cut for a regular episode. So you get a little more insight into our uh, our more extreme views, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we really, really like vaccines. That's a, yes. Is that, are there are there numerous vaccine conversations in the outtakes reel at this point? Um, you know, I'd ha- I'm, I haven't gone through all of it yet, but uh, at okay. least one, at least one. <laughs> yeah. So. Um. So be sure to check that out. Yep. So do you have uh, guesses about the deep dive topic? Okay. We talked about this. Are we going to be talking about the power of positive thinking? We're not, no. Uh, okay. Bummer. Let's. What about the, uh, this is another triple stumper, the affair of the diamond necklace? No. Ooh. Uh, all right. My last guess is uh, Gandhi and the salt uh, was it the Salt March? It was. It was uh, that would be such a good one, but no. Okay. Sorry, no. That that one was tempting, actually. Um, but no. Going back to Monday Ooh. and the Woman of the Century category, we had a triple stumper at the eight hundred dollar level, and uh, the correct response was the fifteenth century. The clue was Joan of Arc. We had a couple of guesses. Uh, our contestants couldn't quite place her in a century. They guessed 14th and 13th rather than 15th. And Joan of Arc is super cool. So so I thought we could spend a little time with Joan of Arc. Okie dokie. All right. So uh, Joan of Arc lived from 1412 to 1431. Um, you're probably not surprised to hear that she died very young. And... Uh, is uh, known also she has she has many nicknames, but uh, the Maid of Orléans is uh, is among the nicknames you may have heard for her. And she was, uh, as you as I'm sure you know, uh, what a, the figure who, in many ways, turned the tide of the third and final phase of the Hundred Years' War, which I have never managed to fully get my head around the Hundred Years' War. Mm. And when I started doing my deep dive research, 
I'm not sure anybody really has their head around the hundred day tour, <laughs> except maybe maybe the really super intense historians of the Middle Ages. But yeah, so the Hundred Years' War um, was in fact actually 116 years, running from 1337 to 1453, and was this very thorny, complicated conflict between England and France mm. over um, over the throne of France um, and who was the rightful successor to it um, in a situation where there were people who had English and French titles or they were uh, had a French title but lived in England. And in one case, the um, it, it all got started when the King of England also was like a Lord who owed fealty to the King of France. And that made things very complicated. Plus everybody was like the, uh, everyone in the Royal families was like strangely intermarried, all, like, like lots of, lots of stuff going on there with, cousins and whatnot. And so, and so the lines of succession got complicated and then everybody wanted to rule France and then they fought for 116 years. Um, historians are going to hate me for that summary. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so the Hundred Years' War had three phases. You can't actually fight for 116 years like, like a war war because wars are expensive and they also had the bubonic plague to deal with. So the the Hundred Years' War ran sort of on and off over 116 years in three phases. Uh, The first one was the Edwardian phase. The Caroline phase was the second. Joan of Arc comes up in the third and final phase, the Lancastrian phase. Hmm. It's a war between England and France, but at this point, the French have split into two factions. Uh, There is uh, the north of France is predominantly controlled by the Armagnac, also known as the Orleanist faction, Um, they are arguably like the most technically legitimate. The Dauphin uh, is their, you know, their guy. Um, And then we have the the Burgundian faction, um, predominantly in southern France. And that split happened around a feud between the Duke of Burgundy, known as John the Fearless, and Louis of Valois, the the Duke of Orleans, who was... Mm -hmm. um, who was the brother of King Charles VI of France, um, mm. who went mad and these two uh, dukes were kind of vying for power in this power vacuum. So we've got those two factions in France. Uh, and then we have um, Henry V is King of England trying to gain control of France. And England keeps launching these kind of scorched earth campaigns and the Burgundian faction ends up allying with the English. And during the early part of this Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years' War, the English are um, pretty successful in gaining control of large parts of France. Uh, The Battle of Agincourt in 1415 is the main sort of battle you should know from that that little section of history. I'm sure that's familiar to you. Yes. English longbows. Yes, that is correct. English longbows make make all the difference in that. And in 1420, we still don't have Joan of Arc on the scene. She's uh, she's eight at this point. The Treaty of Troyes is signed, which gives the French King Charles VI's daughter, uh, Catherine of Valois, to England's King Henry V in marriage. Um, so the, the French king is going to marry his daughter to the King of England 
and then he's going to and then he agrees that when he dies uh his daughter and king henry the fifth the king because of that union king henry the fifth will become like king regent in uh i think you just call it regent in, mm-hmm. in france and there and his descendants through his daughter will be heir to the french throne so this is this is the treaty that's supposed to bring this war to a close problem he has a son dauphin charles the seventh who is disinherited in this process mm. trying to trying to resolve this conflict right so so this is the context into which joan of arc is born and then to make things more complicated king henry v and of england and king charles the sixth of france die within a month of each other in 1422 and so nominally the the king of france is King Henry VI of England, who is not yet a year old. Ah. Yeah. And uh, his uncle, uh, John of Lancaster, King Henry V's brother, is serving as as regent. Hmm. So that is your like mini background on the Hundred Years' War. I, I'm not confident that I did it very well, but there we go. <laughs> um, so into all of this, Joan is born. Uh, she is the daughter of Jacques d'Arc, and his wife, Isabel, born January 6th or thereabouts, um, doesn't really know, in 1412. I'm not quite sure how historians came up with January 6th, but it came from uh, like the like a big Joan of Arc archival website. Hmm. She grows up in a farming family in the village of Dampamy in eastern France. This her, her particular village is loyal to the French crown, supports the claim of Dauphin, but they are in a predominantly Burgundian area. Um, so they're this little like loyalist island. Uh, her family owned some land and some livestock. They were you know, financially comfortable. Joan was illiterate. Uh, girls were not customarily taught to read. She was taught, you know, how to, how to keep a farmhouse. That was, you know, that was the expectation and that was her upbringing. Um, and they were a very religiously observant family. Um, around the age of 12 or 13, um, Joan began to hear voices and to see visions, which instructed her that she was to um, drive out the English and bring the Dauphin to, to Rheims for his consecration. But not quite yet. Their voices were like really specific with her. Um, and uh, she came to identify these voices as St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret. Um, and her visions were often accompanied by, like, bright light. Ah. So so she's seeing these visions and hearing these voices um, over a period of three years or so. And then eventually it, it's time for her to act on them. And in 1428, at the age of 16, a relative brings her to nearby Vaucouleurs to meet with the garrison commander, uh, Robert de Baudricourt. And she petitions him to take her to the French royal court at Chinon. And he laughs at her because, like, of course he does, right? Um, I mean, she's a 16-year-old girl who walks into, like, like an army. uh, Yeah. Yeah, and says that God has sent her visions that she is supposed to save France. So he's, he laughs at her. He sends her away. Um, a few months later, uh, early in 1429, she returns and tries again. And she manages to get two soldiers on her side. She's like this. I mean, you 
can probably surmise this extremely charismatic figure, um, but also like very, very, very humble, kind of self-effacing, but like so certain in what she is saying. So she gets mm-hmm. these two soldiers on her side, uh, Jean de Metz and Bertrand de Poulenci. And these two help her again to get an audience and to be taken more seriously. Uh, she said to them, I found this quote, I must be at the king's side. There will be no help for the kingdom if not from me. Although I would rather have remained spinning wool at my mother's side, yet must I go and must I do this thing for my Lord wills that I do so. Nice. Yeah. So, um, and that's her, I mean, that's her position throughout her, throughout her life is that, you know, she does not really want to be doing this, but it is the job that she understands God has given her to do. So, at that second meeting with Baudricourt, she predicts an unlikely outcome, a reversal at the Battle of Rouvray, which is uh, far from where they are, and the messengers have not yet arrived with the news. So she makes this prediction, and then it comes to, they, they find out that it is, in fact, true, um, oh. and that wins this guy over to her side. Um, so he makes arrangements for Joan to uh, go to Chinon to see um, Charles Seventh, the Dauphin, heir to the throne. I guess he's not Charles the Seventh yet, if he hasn't been crowned, right? Sure. I guess. But he, he will. The Dauphin. Be. Yeah. So he gives her an escort to Chinon, um, soldiers to accompany her. She dresses in men's clothing um, to travel through Burgundian territory because that's the safer way for a woman to travel through hostile territory. Mm-hmm. But these, you know, I think this is her first time traveling in men's clothes, and this is going to come up over and over again later on yeah so they make this long journey to chinon where she is given a private audience with the dauphin um she's 17 years old at this point he's 26 um and we don't know what happened in that room we don't know what she said to him he comes out of that audience like convinced that this 17 year old illiterate farm girl needs to lead his army And she would never tell anyone what she said to him. She took very seriously the idea that that her visions and the voices she heard were not always to be shared. So even later in her in her trial, um, not all of that would would come out. She wouldn't there were things she would never disclose. So at that point, Charles and his uh, mother-in-law, Yolande, were planning a relief expedition to Orléans, which was under siege. Um, And Joan asked to be equipped for war and given charge of the army. And they said yes. (laughs) Um, But first they they needed to establish her theological orthodoxy and her character. They did not want to leave themselves open to accusations of, like, witchcraft or heresy or whatever. Mm Yep. Unfortunately, uh, that wouldn't work out. Right. Um, so uh, they send people to her hometown to inquire of her character. They have theologians examine her and question her. The theologians end up not completely affirming that she is divinely inspired, but saying that there's a favorable presumption that the voices she's hearing are, in fact, God and that she's telling the truth. Hmm. Yeah. There also was an examination to confirm her statement that she was a virgin, which... Ugh. Great. 
Yeah, that's going to come up again also. Right. Yeah. So she's passed all the tests. She's a 17-year-old girl in charge of an army, and off they go to Orléans, arriving in April 29, 1429. It's unclear how much Joan actually fought in this or any other battle. She herself says that she carried the banner and she never killed anyone. Okay. But she seems to have been um, like advising on strategy. She was encouraging and uh, supporting the troops. And certainly where, when she was present, there were these stunning reversals that took place. So although it seems like she may not have wielded a weapon, really remarkable results. Mm Mm-hmm. Orléans had been holding in place uh, under siege by the um, by the English for five months um, with only one offensive assault out of the city. The English couldn't really breach their defenses, and so they were just kind of, you know, but it was a siege. They were waiting them out. But in early May 1429, Joan's army leads a number of a number of battles taking strategic strongholds around this in the vicinity of the city. And eventually, the English army gives up their position and is defeated. Mm. In the course of one of these battles, Joan was shot with an arrow, which penetrated the gap of the armor between her neck and her shoulder. And seems to have stayed on the battlefield with the arrow in. And then, I'm not quite sure how they got it out, but then went back to the battlefield. So, she's pretty much a badass. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like Teddy Roosevelt getting mm-hmm. shot in the middle yeah. of a speech. Yes. Yeah. So, so she got shot, stayed out there. And uh, having retaken Orléans, she has cleared a major obstacle between Chinon and Rheim, uh, which is the traditional place where uh, kings are crowned. Her voices have told her that she is to break the siege of Orléans and have the Dauphin crowned as king. So on they go uh, to Rem, with Joan leading the army and winning some more minor battles along the way. And they arrive there, and on July 17, 1429, the Dauphin is crowned King Charles VII of France, fulfilling Joan's visions. And during this time, Joan wrote repeatedly to the Duke of Burgundy, leader of the Burgundian faction, asking him to break his alliance with the English and make peace with King Charles VII. Ultimately, there was a treaty with the Burgundians, um, a truce of several months, but that that conflict rekindled. In September of 1429, Joan led an attempt to retake Paris from the English. She was wounded by a crossbow bolt to the thigh, um, and the first day ended in retreat. And despite Joan's optimism, King Charles considered it a defeat and ordered the army to withdraw. She also uh, led the army in attempting a siege of Le Charité sur Loire, but ran out of supplies. And it's important to note that in this time after King Charles VII is crowned, maybe it's only important to note to me because I'm a minister, Joan was not hearing her voices. Um, she'd mm-hmm. been given this divine mission of breaking the siege of Orléans and having uh, the Dauphin crowned in Rheims. And that, that was it. Her mission was fulfilled, but she kept fighting. Um, and she later described herself as having listened to the voices of men, not of God. 
in deciding to pursue these campaigns. Interesting side note, um, March 1430, um, she wrote a threatening letter to the Hussites, um, which were like a Protestant faction in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen the name Jan Hus, uh, J-A-N-H-U-S, those guys, she did not like their... uh, their heresy um, and threatened <laughs> to lead a crusading army against them for, you know, because wow. yeah, uh, nothing ended up coming of that, but sure. you know, so in 1430, the Duke of Burgundy began a campaign against the city of Compiègne and Joan and her army went to its aid, but there they were overpowered, um, surrounded, and Joan was pulled from her horse and captured by the Burgundian faction. They imprisoned her for four months. I think there was some possibility that they would ransom her back to uh, to the Armagnac faction, um, but ultimately she was transferred to the English in exchange for ten thousand livres. Mm. And so this is where her the story of her trial starts. She was transported to Rouen, uh, which was the English stronghold in France, to be tried for heresy. So they had a tribunal uh, made up of French clergy, Pierre Cochon, serving as the judge. Um, And tribunal members later admitted that the English ordered them to convict Joan on whatever they could get her for. Mm. So there there were three phases of this kind of heresy trial. The first is kind of this preliminary phase. They sent a man to her hometown of Domremy to inquire about her character. She was also examined as to her virginity again. Uh, the report that they got back from her hometown, the man who conducted it, Nicolas Bailey, said that he had found nothing concerning Joan that he would not have liked to find about his own sister. Oh, Yeah. Um, so to this, that the head judge, Pierre Cochon, tells him that he is a traitor and a bad man and refuses to pay him. <laughs> Uh, because he couldn't dig up any dirt. Ordinarily, female prisoners being tried for heresy would have been guarded by nuns, but Joan was not afforded that, and instead she was placed in a men's prison with male guards. There she continued to wear men's clothes, which she secured with cords to make them more secure, to mm. protect herself against the threat of rape. But wearing men's clothes, the tribunal felt was, was considered um, a violation against a violation of a biblical prohibition against cross-dressing, hmm. um, which, which I did. I pulled it up. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verse yes. five. Um, a woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment for whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord, your God. Yes, uh, is Deuteronomy, that where we get all of our really good rules. Right. So that's the thing is that Deuteronomy is full of rules, most of which are really super culturally contextual and very confusing, and a lot of which we just casually ignore now. Um, yep. Because, you know, it, yeah, because we understand them as not being for us in our time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and that would have been true as, as true in the 15th century, I think, as it is now. Sure. But they needed to get her for something, and she was a deeply 
pious, very concerned about orthodoxy um, person who they somehow needed to convict as a heretic. Heretic. So, um, so the men's clothes. That was it. Turn out to be a big thing. So the first, the first portion of the heresy trial is this kind of a preliminary, like uh, gathering reports on her character. The second portion is an interrogation of the accused where they kind of gather evidence. And then there's the formal trial. So she was interrogated in 15 sessions. The first seven or eight, I believe, were in like a courtroom. The first six. And she was, I think, being pretty badly treated. She was on like basically a starvation diet and kept getting very sick. Um, The 7th through 15th sessions happened, I I believe, in her prison cell. Mm. And in each of these 15 sessions, and we have um, we have pretty thorough records of these because they were like keeping records of the heresy trial. And I'll get to how those were um, uh, how those came to us in a minute. But in each of these sessions, they would try to have her like sworn in and she would kind of quibble about the exact like exactly what she was swearing to because she was very very serious about not taking an oath that she couldn't keep and there were things that she wasn't willing to tell them so like as a sample here from from a transcript uh they asked do you swear to speak the truth in answer to such questions are put to as are put to you and she responds i do not know what you wish to examine me on perhaps you might ask such things that i would not tell and they they respond, will you swear to speak the truth upon those things which are asked you concerning the faith which you know? And she responds, concerning my father and my mother and what I have done since I took the road to France, I will gladly swear to tell the truth. But concerning my revelations from God, these I have never told or revealed to anyone, save only to Charles, my king, and I will not reveal them to save my head. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, so every, just about every session starts with them going back and forth. They want her to take an oath, mm-hmm. and she, well, you know, yeah. she really feels that she has a higher allegiance um, yeah. to, uh, to the king and to God. She requested access to religious sacraments um, and was denied. She really wanted to go to confession. Uh, they interrogated her repeatedly about her childhood, um, her religious upbringing, and her religious understandings. The voices that she had heard and the visions she'd seen, all kinds of details. You know, who are they? What are their names? How are they dressed? What do they look like? Do Mm -hmm. they touch you? Can you ask? All kinds of stuff. They asked a number of questions, a lot of questions, trying to prove that she was a witch or to get her to unwittingly admit to something that might go toward witchcraft. They asked over and over and over again, about the men's clothing that she was wearing. She had attempted at one point to escape from the Burgundians by leaping from the tower where she was being held captive. Um, And there were, uh, she survived from her, her fall. You know, it was a, it was an escape attempt, not a suicide attempt. There were numerous questions about whether she was trying to kill herself because that could have somewhere in a heresy trial. The trial transcripts are really interesting and you really sort of get a sense of her her personality. Um, she was she was never afraid to say that she didn't know. She stayed totally crystal clear on 
her belief that her mission was from God and that her highest accountability was to God. So really, really interesting stuff. After a while, they've, after these 15 sessions, they've collected what they're going to be able to collect. They try her for heresy. Uh, starting in March on March 26th, and her trial went almost two months to May 24. There were 70 charges against her. Oh. Yeah. On May 24, she is taken to a scaffold, and she's told that she will be burned at the stake if she doesn't immediately sign a document. Remember, she can't read. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately sign a document renouncing her visions and agreeing to stop wearing men's clothing. Um, a document of abjuration, uh, mm. which she which she does in fact sign. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's standing out there like you know, we can burn you to death here, or you can sign this thing saying you won't. You know, but I mean, yeah, uh, renouncing her visions, I think, must have really tormented her. Yeah. But she continues to be held in captivity, and on May twenty eighth. Uh, they're able to find that she is a relapsed heretic. Um, and they do that because they've tricked her into wearing men's clothing. Um, she has agreed on, on May 24th to wear the women's clothing. But the guards take away her women's clothing. They leave her nothing but men's clothes. Uh. And eventually she needs to leave her cell. She puts the men's clothes on. And there you are. She promised not to wear men's clothing. And there she is wearing men's clothing again. She's a heretic. Mm-hmm. So... At that point, she is sentenced to death. She is burned at the stake. A guard had slipped her a wooden cross, which she slipped into her dress close to her heart and kept it with her through those last moments. And someone held up, someone in the crowd held up a crucifix to, for her to look at. But she, yeah, she was burned at the stake. And then they showed her body to the crowd so that nobody could say that she, you know, miraculously somehow survived. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a lot of worry about, you know, sort of that she had become this kind of popular figure right. that, you know, who gave people hope and the English did not want them to have hope. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, then they, they took her, they took her body and burned it again. Um, and then they burned the ashes again and then they threw them in the river. Ugh. Yeah. So Joan of Arc died May 30th, 1431. Her mother never gave up fighting for Joan. Um, She worked tirelessly to have Joan's conviction overturned. And it is because of her mother that we have all of these documents. She made sure that they were saved, um, that they could, so that they could be re-examined. And after fighting for this for 24 years, in 1455, Pope Calixtus III appoints three French clergy to reopen the investigation, look at all of these documents, and reassess. And on July 7 of 1456, Joan of Arc is declared innocent mm. of heresy. Nice. And can, she continues to be just like this phenomenally popular figure. Um, eventually, she was canonized. Um, that didn't happen until... Uh, 1920 um it was Mm -hmm. pope benedict pope benedict the 15th who canonized her as a saint nice yeah she's really sort of captured our imagination as a culture um and there are there are more um there's more like art and literature about joan of arc than i could ever touch on Hmm. 
my husband said, oh, you should mention the statue that used to be by our apartment. But there's, you know, there's statues of her everywhere. I have no idea why there was a statue of Joan of Arc near my Upper West Side Manhattan apartment. But there she was. She's all over the place. Mark Twain was sort of obsessed with her and wrote a novelization or wrote a novel based on based on her uh, called Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. Hmm. George Bernard Shaw, his play Saint Joan is another kind of touchstone. And of course, she is a character in Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part One. No surprise there. There are numerous operas based on her life, one by Verdi and one by Tchaikovsky. Those were the sort of the most famous names that I saw, but zillions of operas, many, many, many films. One big standout there is there's a 1928 French silent film called The Passion of Joan of Arc. If you remember the 90s, the 90s television show Joan of Arcadia, uh, it's a, oh, it's yeah. a lighter sort of inspired by Joan of Arc kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that my my all time favorite show Buffy the Vampire Slayer in many ways draws on her legacy, um, as does you know pretty much any sort of story of a an unlikely young girl who happens to be the chosen one to you know to save the world. Right, yep. that's a that is a, a story that that we hear over and over again, and that Joan of Arc really lived. Mm-hmm. So that's Joan of Arc. Uh, there's wow. probably a lot more to say there, but she was amazing, and um, and the trial transcripts are fascinating. So if anybody's bored during this whole quarantine thing, go check those out. Yeah, and I assume they're uh, freely available. They are freely available. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Um, I'll 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 put some links on the on the Patreon and our social media too. Sweet. Wow. You know, I d- I knew very little about her. I knew Hundred Years War, knew she was burned at the stake as a heretic. And she's the maid of Orleans. Or Orle- mm-hmm. Orleans. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's basically it. So yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I uh the military stuff is not my comfort zone, but I tried tried to get my head around it for Joan. Um, mm. For Joan. Yeah. <laughs> for Joan. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think she's awesome. All right, you ready for a quiz? Yeah. Okay, so this is a quiz on Saint, Joan, and Ark. Those three words Perfect. are coming up. I think there. I don't think I managed to get a whole lot of crossover. I think it's you know each question touches on one of those. All right, question one. Hollywood rivals Joan Crawford and Betty Davis co-starred in what 1962 psychological horror thriller in which an aging failed child star torments and tortures her paraplegic sister. Oof. This is something that I have learned before for trivia and have subsequently forgotten. I do not know. Um, so this this is whatever happened to baby, to baby Jane. Jane. Yes. yes, it's a great film, and uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis hated each other and brought mm-hmm. it all to the set. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's um, it has. I think it's held up. It's really held up over the years. It's worth watching. Mm-hmm. All right, question two. 
Kanye West and Kim Kardashian West have four children. Saint West is their second child. For five points each, name any two of the other three. Um, I know one is North. Mm-hmm. And I truly don't know, so I'll just go with South. Ah, oh, that's not a bad guess. Um, Chicago, Chicago is their is their third child, and Psalm is their is their fourth. Yeah, definitely was not going to get there. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so five points on question two. Okay. All right, question three. We're heading into math here, sort of. A degree is an angular measure equal to one three hundred sixtieth of a full rotation. What unit of angular measurement is equal to one three thousand six hundredth of a degree? One three thousand six hundredth of a degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, is that a second? Um, I think I'm going to give it to you. It's an arc second. Arc second. Yeah. 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 Sixty arc minutes to mm-hmm. a degree, and sixty arc seconds to an arc minute. Yeah. All right. So you're at fifteen. Question four. This is a literature question. Known as a novelist, memoirist, and essayist, she is noted for her essay collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, and her memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking, which chronicles her grief over over the death of her husband, John Gregory Dunn and which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2005. Uh, Name the author. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to pull her name. I know uh, this is going to bug me until you say it, which will be like 10 seconds. So right, I'm trying to give uh, you a couple more seconds in case it comes to you. But. Yeah. No, all I have is a joke answer of Joan Calamezzo. Mm, yeah, it's Joan Didion. Didion. One of the many, many books that I intend to read, Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Mm. I read The Year of Magical Thinking, which was, it's a fast read. And it, yeah, this was good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't read Slouching Towards Bethlehem yet. Uh, so ST is the abbreviation for saint, of course. Um, but in street abbreviations, it is the abbreviation for street. Um, BLVD for boulevard. A-V-E for Avenue, what does A-R-C stand for as a street abbreviation? A-R-C. A-R-C. Is this a, like, is this an English word? Like a word it is, used in yes. the United it States? Is a, it is a six-letter English word. I have not seen that many streets or have that many ro- roadways with, with, this, uh, with this word. A-R-C. I, I have, I don't even know. Arcway. I don't. Mm, yeah. Arcade. Oh, duh. Oh, that makes more, that makes sense. Ugh. I don't think All I would right. have gotten there, but yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, sorry for a hard quiz. Hey, you no, are it's at... okay. 15? You're Is at that... 15. 15. You know... I mean, I. Oh, oh! Do you need? Do you want a category? Sure. Yeah. Religious figures. I mean, I'm gonna bet it all. Okay. 
for 30 points. He was born in Lisbon, died in Padua, and you might pray to him if you can't find your car keys. Who is this Roman Catholic saint? You can't find your car keys. Uh, I'm not sure if the, the car keys thing was a clue. Not really. About, yeah, if he's just the patron saint of lost things. Mm-hmm. Born in Lisbon. Died in Padua. Yeah, I am going to take a guess of... I don't know, St. Bartholomew. It's not a bad guess. It's St. Anthony. St. Anthony of Padua, Padua. also known as St. Anthony of Lisbon, um, the patron saint of lost things, Mm -hmm. um, because he had um, a book of Psalms, which books were very valuable at that time. He was a a 13th century Mm -hmm. uh, Franciscan friar. Um, He had a book of Psalms that uh, a, a novice in the order decided to ditch and you know not not become a franciscan friar and uh took the book of psalms with him and saint anthony prayed and this uh this person had a change of heart came back and brought the book of psalms back um Mm. and so uh so saint anthony became the patron saint of lost things there we go yeah all right i'm sorry for my hard quiz it's all right i take a blank I probably, I mean, I, I knew at one time that St. Anthony was the saint of lost things. Yeah. I should have remembered whatever happened to baby Jane. And honestly, Arcade should have been. And I had a sense you'd at least heard of Joan Didion. Like, what, when, yeah. I hate writing a quiz where people are like, literally never heard of that. No idea. No, yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I definitely have. I just haven't read yeah. anything yet by her yeah so yeah well nice work anyway um thanks <laughs> it's all right uh all right well hopefully some of our listeners got some of those maybe we've got some joan didion fans out there or whatever happened to baby jane fans um in any case thank you so much listeners for spending your time with us it's a delight to uh to talk jeopardy um and share it with you yes it is is so you can help us out by subscribing and reviewing on whatever uh, platform you use to get our our podcast and like we talked about earlier you can check out our patreon if you are able to uh, slide a little financial support our way mm-hmm. and of course you can always tell your friends in this time of of kind of being on your own podcasts at least for me are uh extremely valuable (laughs) yep so they're all home to watch jeopardy now too exactly so share with your friends get them Mm -hmm. on here yep uh you can find us on social media we're on facebook at potent potables we're on twitter at potent potables one our website is potentpod.com and you can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com so we'll be coming back to you next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until next time, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.